Let's take our Bibles this morning and open them to our study of the book of Revelation. We find ourselves in an interlude period in our study of the vision that John has had as we have looked at chapters 17 and this morning we'll begin to look again at chapter 18. The Apostle John is is getting a, a closer look at the destruction that is going to come both to the to the future world system of false religion and the world's central economic center city, as we'll see in chapter 18. We have already uh, studied chapter 17, and so what is pictured here in chapter 18 is a, a central commercial system, <clears throat> a central commercial system managed and operated under the power of Satan by the Antichrist. And the focus of chapter 18 is just like the focus of much of Revelation, and that is judgment. The judgment of this central system. And so in the chronology of the vision of the final days of the tribulation, this is the last chapter in the book of Revelation prior to or before the return of Jesus Christ as He returns to set up His kingdom on earth to reign for 1,000 years, as we'll see when we get to chapter 19. So when we think about the world now, And in the future, as you look ahead, what we are seeing here is the final form of world government. I say all that because I want us to be clear on on that in our minds as we think through this. We're not seeing life now in the sense of today right here in chapter 18, but we are seeing the future and the unfolding of what will come as the final form of of world government. It will be a centralized power. It will be a centralized power under the Antichrist. Uh, It will exist right up until the time that Christ comes to destroy it. When He returns, that will be its final destruction. And the rule, Christ will then rule on the earth from Jerusalem for a thousand years. Then will come the great white throne judgment where all men will stand before God, at least all those who are unsaved. For the Christian, we would already have received that reward in the glories of heaven and the bema seat of Christ. But this will be then the great white throne judgment where all of those who are unsaved will stand before God. The books will be opened and their deeds will be judged. And then a new heaven and a new earth in which All true believers will dwell forever and ever with Christ. So that's the chronology, if you will, or the eschatological timeline, if you will, of future events. Last time we spent our time looking at some of the background, at least, concerning this commercial center that we see here in chapter 18. We don't have time to review all of that. If you weren't here, or if you're confused about that, then maybe ask the guys in the sound room or or go online and listen to the sermon from last Lord's Day, and you can get a refresher on all of the background of that. 
But just to, to really quickly kind of give us a, a quick understanding of all of that last time, you remember that we briefly looked at Zechariah's prophecy in the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah, as you know, was seeing a vision that God was giving him of this wicked system that was going to be planted, if you will, or or grown, if you will, in the land of Shinar. The land of Shinar is was just the land where Babylon was to be built, or Babel, and that is, in our day and age, modern-day Iraq. It's where Babylon was. That's where Babel was. And it was established upon wickedness. So Zechariah was given that vision, and he literally saw demons, if you will, setting up this final commercial world system in the land of Shinar. It was a system of wickedness, a system of utter materialism that was being sent, uh, established in Babylon. So that's just a quick background for us to kind of have it in our minds. If you want the full detail, you can go to last week's message. And so with that in our mind as the background, let's go now to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 18, because John here is given a much more comprehensive picture of this final stage of the earth under Antichrist and ultimately really under Satan's control. Let's just, I, I just want to read for us this, the first three verses. Chapter 18, after these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was illumined, but with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, and he has, she has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit. A prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. You can stop right there. Remember this city is Babylon. Just like the false religious system is also known as Babylon. The The two systems are uh, under the same name, if you will. So this too is a system, but is a system centralized or centered in a city. And last time I gave reasons why I believe it is going to be an actual rebuilt city of Babylon, which will be the final capital city of the Antichrist world empire. Notice, in chapter 17, there was the religious system also known as Babylon. Remember verse 5, And upon her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. That was her name as well. And so that system gets destroyed by the commercial system. And you see that in chapter 17 and verse 16, when the ten horns which you saw and the beast, that is the Antichrist, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. So the Antichrist 
is going to destroy the the system of religion, this false system of religion, so that he might be the only one worshipped. That's his drive. That's his aim. That's his goal. Midpoint of the tribulation, he sets himself up as God in the temple. So I believe chapter 17 and the destruction of the woman Babylon who is false religion will happen midpoint of the tribulation because the Antichrist will set himself up as God and thereby be worshipped as God. So Antichrist beast or the beast and the Antichrist being synonymous terms, the Antichrist crushes the false religious system of the day And he now absorbs that system and all the religious components into one formal religious system to himself. One whereby he stands as the only one who is to be worshipped. And I think that is why the woman is called and described as the city, as you notice in chapter 17 and verse 18. And the woman whom you saw... Notice it says there is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. We don't need to be confused by that. The woman is the symbol of the false religious system, as verse 5 tells us, but its roots and its future manifestation are grounded in the real city. So verse 18 of chapter 17 is really the link to chapter 18. That's the connection. That's why they're spoken of under this same kind of term. So here you have this final form of Satan's world government. Under the power and authority of the Antichrist, he has given his power to the Antichrist who has now wiped out the false religious system and remains alone in control of the world and having the world worship him as if he is now God. Now last time I began to give us an outline of this chapter. And as we look through this judgment in chapter 18, there are four different parts that we're going to look at. And I read verses 1 to 3 this morning, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning, but I'll list them for you again. Number one was the verdict upon Babylon. The verdict upon Babylon, and that is verses 1 to 3. The second component or aspect or part will be the judgment from heaven against them. The judgment from heaven at least pronounced against them. After that, we'll kind of see it laid out. And we'll see it laid out through the third part, which is the cries of those on the earth. So you have the verdict upon them in the first three verses. Then you have the judgment against them in verses 4 through 8. And then after that, the cries of the earth in verses 9 through 20. And then the final part will be the symbolized devastation of Babylon in verses 21 to 24, where a strong angel casts a millstone into the sea. And it is picture there of the destruction and devastation of this city. So let's just make our way through this first one and and uh, as we work our way through this text. Some, 
Some people have asked me in the past, how do you know how much you're going to preach on any given day? And I I always tell them, I I don't really know how much I'm going to preach on a given day. I, I just approach the text and... And you may not know this, but I bring the same amount of paperwork each week to the pulpit with me and the same amount of notes because I know those same amount of notes allow us for an appropriate amount of time to try to be clear on what's being said. And so whenever my notes are filled up to that amount, that's where we stop. There's no magic to it. And so we're only going to get through verse 3. Why? Because that's how much time we have. That's what God's allowed us. That's where my notes end. And so that's where we're going to go. So now you know. There's no secret. All right, so let's just look at this first one, this verdict upon Babylon. This verdict upon Babylon. We already read these three verses for us, so I won't belabor that point again. But notice, John is introduced in this vision of judgment with the words in verse eight, chapter 18, verse 1, after these things. After these things. In other words, after the Antichrist and the ten kings that are in cohorts with him join and destroy the system of false religion that we saw and was described for us in chapter 17, so that he might be worshipped after that and after the passing of his rule for three and a half years. Remember I said that in the midpoint of the tribulation he will, this uh, point of verse 16 in chapter 17 where they come against her, that will happen, I believe, at the midpoint of the tribulation. Therefore the Antichrist is ruling from the temple as God to be worshipped for three and a half years. So after that and after her destruction and after his rule, his judgment now comes. And it's introduced to us by uh, these words. After these things, and notice it says, and I saw another angel. Another angel. This again is a different angel from the one in chapter 17. God uses his angels, and his angels play an integral part in the carrying out of his redemptive plan. Sometimes I think angels are just off in the distance, floating on clouds, playing harps, waiting for people to come around, and yet God, it's clear in all of Scripture that God uses angels as integral instruments and messengers of his in order to bring about his redemptive plan. And he is using another angel here in this divine announcement about judgment. In fact, you could probably spend an entire uh, week of months doing a study in Revelation simply on angels and learn a whole lot about the character of angels from this book. But this angel, notice, comes directly from heaven He isn't dispatched from some other duty and say, okay, now you need to go over here. He comes from directly from heaven and we can rightly conclude from what John has written for us here that he has come from being before God himself. Notice what it says. After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority. Having great authority. This angel has been dispatched to 
John so that John may see these things. And he has great authority. And and every time I study the Bible, this question is always going in my mind. I'm sure it irritated my father when I was a young boy. And that question is, why? Why does this angel have megas exousia, great authority? And the only answer that we really get from this text here is because he has been commissioned by God himself. This angel has been before God and now has been commissioned by God and therefore as God's ambassador to come and do this, he carries out his duty and he carries with him God's authority. The only example that I can even think of on an earthly level is when, for example, our Secretary of State goes to another country and brings with him the authority of the President of the United States on his behalf. He speaks on behalf of the President of the United States. Every ambassador, in fact, to other countries speaks on behalf of the country from which they are sent. And this angel is just like that. And yet he is from heaven. He is the ambassador of God and he carries with him the authority of God. And notice the earth is illumined with His glory. This has confused some people over time. Many people have thought this was Jesus Christ, but that is not the case. Jesus Christ is never described in Scripture as an angel. He is the Son of God. He is God Himself, but He is never described as a, simply as a messenger of God. So this is not Jesus Christ, although this angel is... Uh, coming in such a way and with such presence that the earth is illumined with His glory. This is very interesting to me, or at least ought to be maybe curious to all of us, because anytime someone is in the presence of God in His veiled glory, if they are human, they are frightened to death, like Isaiah was when he saw God's train filling the temple, His glory filling the temple. In the veiled glory of God, it wasn't even the the unveiled glory of God because no one can see the unveiled glory of God and live. And so there's this veiled glory of God and Isaiah sees it in the throne room of God and he is undone. He is completely undone. He falls on his face because he knows he is in utter holiness. So if God even allows man to live, they come away, in essence, with the reflection of his divine glory, just like Moses did when he arose and ascended to Mount Sinai when God called him up, and Moses sat there speaking with God in God's veiled glory, and Moses says, let me, God, tell me who, who, I need to know who is sending me, and when he was going to go back to Egypt, and God said, you Let me hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll let my glory pass by. And and the description of that in Scripture is all of the attributes of God are passing by. And Moses sees that. And so just like on Mount Sinai here, Moses sees the veiled glory of God and it reflects off of his face. And so this angel is now in the presence of God, and he comes to earth in the illumined glory of God. You say, why can't a human or why can't an angel stand in the presence of God without being consumed? 
First Timothy chapter 6 and verses 13 to 16 tell us. Paul says to Timothy in verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. That's the glory of God. Jesus Christ is in His unveiledness unapproachable. He dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. No man can see God in His full unveiled glory. Isaiah saw the glory veiled in the temple. Moses saw the glory veiled on Mount Sinai. I believe this angel saw the glory of God probably veiled and yet that veiled glory was so brilliant that now this angel has it upon him so that when he comes to the earth, it illumines the entire earth. The diminished glory of God shining from this heavenly messenger now illumines the earth. He's like a a phosphorus candle bringing light to the night sky as if it was day. This is an amazing moment. Notice, verse 2, he cries out with a mighty voice. He's not only a great, has great authority, but he cries out with a mighty voice, saying, this is the verdict of heaven. This is the verdict upon Babylon. This is God's divine pronouncement of what will happen. Fallen Fallen is Babylon the great. Remember I told you last week that fallen means utter devastation. Complete destruction and utter devastation so that nothing will ever become of Babylon ever again. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. From the perspective of heaven, her day of doom is complete. Even as we sit here this morning. Even in the reality that her day is yet future in the tribulation by which this will be the central city in which the Antichrist will rule as much as it is a future event in the words and in the mind of the heavens, it is as if it is already complete, even though it's yet to come. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So the rest of chapter 18 simply describe for us what has been set in stone in the glories of heaven. This is a done deal. The destruction of Babylon is sure and it will be complete. So the angelic messenger comes and has a pronouncement of judgment. Now I I, I want to show us something from the Old Testament that will hopefully help us understand what we're seeing here because this is just like what happened to ancient Babylon. 
What we see and what is going to happen in the future with future Babylon is just like we, what we have seen already in the history of ancient Babylon. And so I want us to turn in our Bibles back to Isaiah. Isaiah. Sometimes this is why it takes us so much time to walk through a text, because you can't just walk through it. You have to put pieces together. And so Isaiah chapter 13 gives us some historical understanding about ancient Babylon, but not just that, but also about future Babylon. And Isaiah is prophesying here about the destruction of ancient Babylon. And beginning in Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 17, he says this, Behold, I am going to stir up the Medes against them. That is, God is saying this to Isaiah. I'm going to stir up the Medes against them. You remember the Medes were one of the, even one of the countries that were were seen in Daniel's, the Medes and the Persians, in Daniel's vision, when Nebuchadnezzar had the vision of the statue, those were one of the countries, God's going to stir up the Medes against them who will not value silver, nor will they take pleasure in gold. In other words, they're not driven by greed, they're not driven by money, they have no care in that. These are, these are like religious terrorists, no care for anything about those things. Their, bow, their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children. That means they don't care who it is they kill. It's just that God's stirring up in their hearts this utter idea of destruction. They're not driven by greed. They're driven by one thing, and that is just utter destruction. They don't care who they kill. It's going to come that way. Notice verse 19, And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, The glory of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, we know, was destroyed by divine devastation as fire fell from heaven. It will never be inhabited or lived in again from generation to generation. And here in verse 19, it says... Babylon will be as when God overthrew Sodom in Gomorrah. And that phrase, you have to understand something about prophecy. In that phrase, Isaiah is jumping from the historical fulfillment of the destruction of Babylon to the future final destruction of Babylon in the tribulation. A time when in which it will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation. So in verse 19, there is this historical reality going on. This beautiful Babylon, which was the pride of the Chaldeans and the Medes came in and crushed it. And yet in verse, the last phrase, there is both that near fulfillment and this look to the future Verse 20, notice, when it will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation. Nor 
will the Arab pitch his tent there, nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there. But the desert creatures will lie down there, and their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches also will live there, and shaggy goats will frolic there. Seems like a strange phrase. You got all this destruction going on. You got all this devastation and, and desolation and creatures from the desert, snakes and lizards and scorpions and whatever else you can conjure up in your mind, and owls, these birds of prey, ostriches, these kinds of things, and shaggy goats. What? What are you talking about? Well, if you know Hebrew at all, then you know the word in Hebrew for shaggy goats refers to demons. Demons. In fact, some of your translations may even say that. Shaggy demons. The word is Seirim. Seirim. And it means demons, or it's translated here, shaggy goats. So you have owls that are there, ostriches that are there. And then you have these shaggy goat demons that will frolic there. Then after that, it says, hyenas will howl in their fortified towers, jackals in their luxurious palaces. Her faithful time also will come soon, and her days will not be prolonged. So you cannot forget when you think of Isaiah and you read this passage, you cannot forget that in prophetic passages, there is both this double fulfillment going on. Isaiah is writing about... What, he, what will happen in the near history, as we know it, is history of the nation of Israel and as Babylon went. But he's also writing eschatologically, talking about the future. So he isn't just speaking about Babylon in his day, but also Babylon in the future. So think about that now in your mind and go back to Revelation chapter 18 because we see the same description In Revelation chapter 18, verse 2, And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Remember the word fallen, utter destruction. So utter destruction, utter destruction has come upon Babylon the great. And notice, she has become a dwelling place of demons. The prison of every unclean spirit prison of every unclean and hateful bird. So here you have the description like literal ancient Babylon, which became desolate, was occupied by birds of prey, birds that eat meat. Birds described here in verse 3 are those that congregate around dead things. Birds that are hateful and unclean. They, they congregate around dead things. They're, they're where desolation is. Remember a couple of years ago, Joe and I, when we were in Honduras, traveling in the back of a truck to go to somewhere, came around the corner on this dirt road, and, and there was lying there on the side of the road a dead dog, and what was congregating around that dog, other than the utter scent of that wafting through our nostrils, was birds of devastation. Vultures, Honduran vultures of some kind, eating the deadness 
And so too will be the final Babylon. It will be the prison. The word there is a cage. That's the the word in the literal language. A cage. It will be a, a cage for the demons. It will be a cage for every unclean spirit. A cage for every unclean and hateful bird. Babylon, when God judges it and when God destroys it, it will be this place where demons are kept and where the birds of devastation are kept until their final destruction when God throws them into the lake of fire. So you have this prison. These are demons in the prison. That's By the way, their origin, they're demons. That's where they have come from. And they are unclean. That's their operation. So you have demons. Uh, This is a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit. That's, in essence, talking about the same thing. Their origin and their operation. They are demons and they are unclean. So just like it said in Zechariah's prophecy, this is the place where wickedness has been its foundation. Utter wickedness. This arrogant city which claims world domination is now, in the mind of God, even though it's yet future, is now not only a monument of judgment while Christ rules on the earth, but it is a prison for the demons and they are there until their final destruction in hell itself. Remember, Satan will be bound as well in the abyss for a thousand years. So now as we study this, as we look at this, again, I'm constantly asking the question, why? Why? Why Why is God destroying this place? Why is God treating this place with this kind of, of fiery wrath? And thankfully, God loves to answer those questions. He answers it for us here in verse 3. We got a, we got a degree of that answer last week as we looked at the, the scope of, of this to the degree in verse 7 that she glorifies herself, then pour out upon her the same thing. These pay her back, verse 6, double according to her deeds. What are her deeds? This is her judgment. Verse 3 says that. Notice it says, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality. The kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. God is destroying, listen, God is destroying Babylon in the future. Why? Because the satanic influence has gone global. The satanic influence of this city has now gone global. Notice the magnitude of Babylon's sin. It says, for all the nations. All the nations. That is an all-inclusive term. All the nations. No one is left out. All of the nations are involved. All have drunk the wine of the passion. That that word for passion is wrath. All of the nations have, have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her immorality. They've all taken it in. 
It's for them all. And, and they are all in the pool together. Everybody's swimming in the same pool. The intoxicating lifestyle of sin now brings its penalty. The fury of God is against her spiritual immorality. For all the nations are intoxicated with the the wrath of her spiritual idolatry. And all the nations are now prostituting that which is considered sacred for the sake of gain in their own life and the gain of personal pleasure. Religion and the, the system of religion linked so now under the Antichrist with the centrality of this commercial system is being used in such that they are now intoxicated with their sense of, of gain by through, or through, their sense of gain through the use of whatever is sacred in order to gain it. And so to the extent her sin is, therefore her judgment will come. And here her sin is now gone global. It's global. This isn't just isolated to one section of humanity. This is global. The whole world becomes the ally with the system of commerce. The whole world has been sucked in. And the involvement includes the worship of Antichrist. Involvement in the system includes that. In fact, we've already seen to not worship Antichrist is to be killed. And so to be a part of the system is to be worshiping the Antichrist. And the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her immorality. And notice the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich. This is a very prosperous system. Very wealthy system. Seems rather strange as we think about it in our own study of Revelation, doesn't it, that it would be so successful? Seems rather strange after all the sealed judgments have been taken have been flushed out and all the trumpet judgments have taken their course. As you review the first three and a half years of the tribulation, even in your own mind, as we've walked through that study, remember back in chapter 8, hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down to the earth. And a third of the earth is, is burned up. A third of the trees are burned up. A third of every piece of green grass is burned up. I mean... Imagine the the earth, 33% of the earth just is scorched. Makes the fires in California look like nothing. A great mountain burning with fire is thrown down to the earth into the sea and a third of the sea becomes blood. A third of the sea creatures die. A third of the ships of the sea even are destroyed. And then chapter 8, the great star named Wormwood is cast from heaven down to earth onto the fresh water and the rivers and the springs of fresh water become deadly to drink. So it seems rather odd that this would be such a prosperous place. Seems that even in the midst of all that there is 
there's some level at least of prosperity that is maintained because we, we read the word wealth here and we read the word riches here. Surely under all of that and more, the commercial system of the world would start to collapse. But it manages to hang on to some prosperity. It says in verse 3, notice the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. We know something about those merchants. Chapter 18, we'll get to know them more. They are described to us as people who engage in sailing. Verse 11, the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her. Why? Because no one buys their cargoes anymore. What cargoes? Cargoes of gold and silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every article of ivory, every article of very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, perfume, frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, even slaves and human lives. They're trading in everything. Seems that this system would depend upon the sea. Cargoes passing from country to country, from land to land, across the sea. It will depend upon those cargoes being moved. And while things may be collapsing under the judgment of God, the system has some success. And I believe this tells us a little more about the resourcefulness of Satan himself. This is what always makes me cringe when I hear somebody say, Oh, I'm just going to rebuke Satan. Do you think Satan really cares? about you you have no power to rebuke satan we have no power to say anything to satan in fact we ought to simply be praying to god we ought to simply be quoting scripture if we're doing anything but to say that we can rebuke satan listen this shows us the resourcefulness of satan with all the destruction that god is throwing down from the glories of heaven upon the earth in precursor fashion just be for the final day of destruction and satan is still resilient enough to continue the system when it says in Ephesians 2, he is the prince of the power of the air, we should not be mistaken about that. He is a vanquished foe already. That's a done deal in the, in the annals of the history of God's redemptive plan. His day is coming, but he will not give in. Satan is not going to go to hell willingly. God will cast him away. And here... Revelation chapter 18, as people are killed, as the consumer pool gets smaller and smaller, the system will still be successful. And even now, really think about it, even now the world in which we live is getting ready for Antichrist. It's getting ready for the great commercial boon of the Antichrist. And God is also readying himself for this day to destroy it. All the earth is involved. First, the nations. That's made up of individuals. We make up the nation of the United States. We are individuals. All the nations are involved. That means all the individuals of the earth are involved. The kings of the earth are involved. You notice in verse 3, and the commercial barons of commerce are involved. The merchants. And all are taking part in the idolatrous sin of Babylon. 
Everybody's in the pool. So the power of Babylon is now in the hands of sinful rich. Sinful rich. Notice verse 3, they became rich by the wealth of her sensuality. Literally, that means they became rich by the power of her luxuries. The power of her luxuries. This is lifestyles of the rich and famous in the worst kind of way. This is why we can take the words of James chapter 5 and even apply them to these final days. Go over to James chapter 5. James says, beginning in verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. And their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously. You've lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned And put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Very interesting passage here. Because that is a description that we could easily apply to the future Babylon. This is a description of what James is talking about even in his day that we could certainly even say happens in our day and yet even more so we can say that it applies certainly to Revelation chapter 18. Wealth of sensuality. Wealth of luxuries. You say, okay, so what's our response to be to all of this? What's our response to be to The reality of what God is doing and what God will do in the future. Well, first is this. We know that as the church, Christ, the head of the body, we are the church. We know that as the church, Christ is coming for us. Paul clearly told the Thessalonian believers of that. He didn't want them to be unawares, but we will meet Christ in the air. There will be a snatching away of the church. We know from the Old Testament prophecies that the reason for the tribulation is for ultimately calling back the Jews to himself so that Christ can rule from the earth as their king and as their Lord for a thousand years upon the earth before the new heaven and the new earth. So we we know that to be true. We know the tribulation is for the Jew And we know the church will be snatched away. So what are we seeing then in Revelation? 
what we are seeing gives us then a greater and greater understanding and comfort to the sovereign power of God. To the design of God that His Word is true and it will come to pass. But what about now? We know the future. We see the future. We we look at Revelation. We know what's coming in the future. We're not confused about that in that way. But what about now? What about now as we live in our day? And I think the words of James really ring true in our time. And what's our response to be to those things ringing true in our time in James chapter 5? Well, if you're not there still, go back there. Because James says in verse 7, be patient. Be patient. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Our response, folks, in this world today, our response in everyday moments of life, our response, no matter what is taking place, is a response of faith. You say, well, that seems pretty simplistic. Yeah, because it is. It's a response of faith. You see, it's not a response of what we can see and what makes sense to us by way of visual reference and all of these things out here make sense and therefore we walk that way. No, faith is the conviction of things what? Not seen. James says, look, you see all of this stuff going on. You 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 have all of this happening. There's all of this oppression taking place. Listen, As a Christian, your response is a response of patience, waiting until the coming of the Lord. Respond by walking in faith. Respond by walking in trustment to Christ. Faith is the eyes that can see the unseen. James says, brethren, listen, wait. Wait until the coming of the Lord. All they knew about the coming of the Lord is all you and I know about the coming of the Lord, that one day Christ will come. They know what God said to them. They know what the apostles and prophets said to them. And so they haven't seen it, but he says, wait upon that. That's the very reality of your life. Our world may look bleak. Our, our, our days to come may look bleak. The, the world around us looks like it's, it's rapidly approaching the end days. It may be oppressive. The rich get richer. The oppression of the poor grows on and on and on. James says, wait. Be patient. Just like the farmer waits for the produce. Be patient. You too, verse 8, be patient. Strengthen your hearts. Strengthen your hearts. What do you strengthen your heart with? Faith. What do you strengthen your heart with? Walking according to obedience? Why? Because the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
And so what does that look like in practice? What does it look like in the outworking of that? What is patient faith, trusting in God, trusting what God's doing, knowing that He's true and right? We know the end. And James says, be patient. What's that look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. Verse 9. James 5, verse 9. Do not complain. Do not complain. Words groan. Don't groan and moan and bemoan the time, brethren. Don't do it when? Against one another. Don't be fighting amongst one another. Don't complain against one another. Why? Because Christ is ready to come. Suffer patiently, verse 10. Suffer patiently. You see, for the rich who don't know Christ, riches will do them no good. You know that. Monetary gain does no one any good. The, the future reality of Babylon, the economic system, the central commercial system of the world will do them no good as they stand before God. This world is blind. This world is blind now it was blind in ancient Babylon. It will be blind in the future Babylon. And they will turn to their riches, but they will not turn to true riches, which are in Jesus Christ alone. That's the only place there's hope. Jesus Christ alone. Psalmist says in Revelation chapter 18, they have become rich by their wealth. True riches will never help them. Their riches will never help them. The only riches that will help are the riches of Jesus Christ and Him alone. In order to have that, you have to turn your back on anything and everything the world ever has to offer and entrust yourself to Christ. That doesn't mean God won't allow you to have wealth. But if God allows you to have wealth, if God entrusts you with wealth as a believer, then you ought to use that wealth. You ought to always be using that wealth for His kingdom and His glory. And so we we have come full circle. We I want to kind of finish our time this morning with, with where we started earlier in our morning of worship. Psalm 1. Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Listen, how blessed, how happy is the life of blessing of the man who who doesn't follow after the advice of the world. How happy is the man who, who doesn't get caught up in the allure of all the things of the world. How happy is the man who doesn't sit and rest himself in the assembly of the world and all that the world has. No, that's not the blessing, man. That's not the life of blessing. The life of blessing is on the one who delights in the law of the Lord. Because he delights in the law of the Lord, he meditates on his law day and night. Some of you have asked me sometimes, how often should I read my Bible? You know how often you should read your Bible? All the time. God says day and night. 
That's just a metaphor. That's a metaphor for any time you can be in the Word of God. Why? Because it plants you firmly. It gives you structure. It nourishes your very soul so that in perfect time you'll yield the fruit of God in season all the time. In those cold moments, in those desolate moments, in those moments when life seems so dry, you won't be like the leaf on the tree that has no nourishing juices coming from the root system. You won't be like that leaf that withers. And whatever you do, it will be prosperous before the Lord. That's what the psalmist is saying. Revelation chapter 18. It's not going to be like that. It's only going to be like verses or verse 1 where people are following after the advice of the world. People are following after the allurements of the world. People are huddling together in the assembly of the world all against God, all for their own pleasure and their own senses. John is seeing judgment come upon the world. And God is calling mankind to come out of it. We'll get to see that next time. Notice just in verse 4. I'll just read this verse and then we'll close in prayer. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins and that you may not receive of her plague. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the awesome reality that your promises are true. Every single bit of them, every one of them is true. They will never not be fulfilled. Lord, you are faithful. You are just. You are righteous. You are holy. One day, all of the earth will bow the knee before you. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of you. Both the saved and the unsaved, each mouth will confess the same thing. Some to their destruction and others, Father, it will be because you have saved them. We thank you for the salvation that we can find in Christ. And that you draw people to yourself. You open their eyes and they express faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for making us alive in Him. And Lord, we are grateful for this view into the future. The future where you will draw back your people. They will know their Messiah whom they have rejected. We're grateful that in their rejection we as the non-Jew have been grafted in. Lord, help us to not be prideful for that, for it was not us. had nothing to do with us and only everything to do with your great grace and glory and mercy. So thank you for those things. Thank you for what we've learned this morning. May it be uh, helpful to us to live these things out by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.